0: You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven
1: podcast with L.D., Will the Thrill, and T.J. Two.
2: Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, L.D., along with me for the ride, riding shotgun and solo again, is Mr. Will the Thrill.
3: And to that, I say greetings and salutations.
2: Are you not drinking anything?
3: Did you hear the beer? Oh, I heard the. I heard it. You took yes. too long. You... Well, it was. Uh, is I was keeping the audience in anticipation. Okay, this is dead air. <laughs> patient. We'll if in post. Yeah. Yes, I, I do have a beer.
2: Oh, what are you drinking?
3: Uh, I opted for one of your favorite breweries, the Belching Beaver. This is the <laughs> deaf. Okay, there it is. There's the gooberish laugh I was expecting. (laughs) This is the Deftones Phantom Bride IPA. Huh,
2: okay. I mean, I like the name, but that's because I'm a 12-year-old boy. I certainly hope not. (laughs) I mean, fair. Yes. So I have to say again, you know, with this podcast, we have three hosts. And one of those hosts is in a very heavy news cycle. Currently, uh, we the day that we're recording this is the day after the State of the Union. And so my brother is working toward uh, getting his newspaper out with uh, kind of a wrap up of that. And so unfortunately, he is drowning in work right now and will be joining us on our next episode. Um, so if you're wondering where TJ, too, is, you know, he has a pretty heavy job. His job, you as you can imagine, is pretty busy. So, uh, you
3: know, I. My response is, if you're wondering where TJ2 is, turn on your TV and just look at, and I will casually gesture to everything right now because he's pretty wrapped up in all of it.
2: Yeah, I I do not envy my brother's job, uh, but he is incredible at it and he takes everything in stride. So occasionally he will have to miss episodes. And uh, unfortunately, this is going to be one of them. We do have sad news on two fronts. We had two deaths. I mean, we've had several deaths since the last time we chatted, but the two that kind of, pertain to this podcast, which is you know, an entertainment podcast, would be one Nightbird. I'm so sorry, I'm actually gonna butcher her name, but her name was Jane Marzuski. and I think I'm I think I'm saying that right. If I'm not, I'm so, so sorry. But she went by her stage name Nightbird. and she actually won the golden buzzer on AGT. And unfortunately, she lost her battle with cancer on February 19th. She had this great line that I think that we should all kind of live by, which she said, you can't wait until life isn't hard anymore before you decide to be happy. And I think that really resonated with a lot of people. And she was a a beautiful singer. Any label, any arena would have been lucky to have her. Her family said that anybody who knew her enjoyed her larger than life personality and sense of humor. And the type of cancer that she had gave her a 2% chance of survival. But she was so optimistic that she said that 2% was more than 0%. The next death is actually more personal for me. And that is we lost an incredible performer. It's like, they called him the Freddy Krueger of comedy. And that was the amazing Jonathan.
3: I still remember that show we saw him in. Do we see him twice in Vegas?
2: I saw him twice in Vegas. I saw him him once for my uh, bridal, what do you call those things? Bridal? uh, a bachelorette weekend bachelorette party yes bachelorette. so i went to his show for my bachelorette party because i was like i don't i don't care about going to a strip club i want a guy i want to see a guy drinking windex and, and sawing I do- through
3: his own arm right
2: <laughs> yes and flipping you he has a machine that like flipped you off and it was it was manic and it was crazy he stole my lighter it was it was hilarious
3: and then there's the monkey that comes out it's like bah.
2: Well, he, he, he has the monkey as part of the skit, but yeah, it's, um, he he was, he was a joy. He was hilarious. And the funny thing is I actually contacted him because I was going through a phase where i wanted to i won't say it's a phase it's still there i really want to tell stories and stuff like that that's why i have this podcast but i um i wanted to create a documentary about him because nobody had done that before and i thought he was this wild guy and he was really funny and like he had he had done you know a ton of shows for comedy central and premium blend and stuff like that and he had been going since the 90s and that's when i became a fan of him and so i became friends with him online. And then I became real life friends with him. And I was like, Hey dude, I want to do a documentary on you. And so I started filming this documentary and I had to abandon it. Um, just because at the time I didn't have the proper equipment to actually capture everything that he wanted. And so he kind of got mad at me and we really didn't talk after that. But the funny thing is I stayed friends with his magician's assistant and her name is Psychic Tanya. I will not give her real name out here. I don't want people oh, to go a, bother. She's her.
3: hilarious.
2: God, is. not only is she incredibly funny, she has incredible timing. She's hilarious. She did a Carol Baskins thing um, when we were all in quarantine and she's hilarious. But Psychic Tanya is brilliant and I love her. And I became really good friends with his wife. And I was actually even with them on their wedding day. I actually didn't get to go to the wedding because I had to be back in Los Angeles for another show. And so I met her on the wedding day and we became fast friends and uh, she is a sideshow act and she's brilliant. So, you know, I've kept in touch with her over the years. And unfortunately, I believe back in like 2007, that he was diagnosed with just what was called a serious heart condition. Mm -hmm. It was cardiomyopathy and you know, with a combination of the weight loss and blood thinners, he's actually doing a lot better. Um, and initially I think they gave him one year to live. And then five years later, he was still there. And I was so excited to like, you know, see him get better and perform and still stick around. And, you know, it, I followed Anastasia very closely with this because she's a rock man. Mm -hmm. She took care of him through everything. Um, she, she was his caregiver. She was Mm -hmm. his rock. She is. An incredible woman. And, you know, he passed away in his sleep at the age of 63 on February the 22nd, 2022, which I think is a really interesting date. But I mean, what can I say? He he was he was so interesting and he was so different than every other magician out there. that He he was a mainstay. He
3: was really the the comedy magic guy. Yeah. I mean, And since then, a lot of people have picked that up and and done very well. You know, I want to disparage anybody. I will say that he was probably the first one that hit it big, not only in Las Vegas, but on television and became, you know, a national celebrity.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I chose to see him for my bachelorette party. Like, I was like, I want to see him. And it was a sold out show. And Was he still
3: at the Sahara at that point? No, he
2: was somewhere else. He was off he was off one because we I saw
3: we yeah, we went to Sahara if I remember correctly we
2: went to the Sahara yeah. I saw him and the, the next one we saw was like further down the um strip but you know in the end basically all I have to say is Anastasia and Tanya I'm, I will not say your real name, so I don't want people to like chase you down, but I love you both dearly. And I'm so sorry that Jonathan is no longer with us, but you guys gave him so much love and you took such good care of him and you guys are friggin' heroes. And, um, you know, we, I'm, I'm really sad to see him go. All right. Well, that being said, before I get too emotional because, um, I have that capacity, uh, we actually have some awesome news because we have a brand new sponsor for the show And I'm actually going to step aside and will speak on it because he actually has a very personal connection to it. And, you know, we really appreciate this.
3: Absolutely. Thank you, LD. And let's talk a little bit about our sponsor for the show, which is BetterHelp. I think we can all agree that no matter where we are in life, we need a little help sometimes. Nobody can do it alone. And the reality of it is we spend hours working on our careers, losing weight. We push forward. We try to be the best that we can. But let me ask you this. When was the last time you stopped and focused on your mental health? It's a tough question to answer. I'll tell you for me, it was way too long. Like most people, I did that hard work. I was exercising, I had a full-time job and then some. At the end of every day, I couldn't help but feel that something was off. The equation just wasn't balanced. And I thought that something must be wrong with me. And what that led me to be is hesitant. I didn't really wanna talk about it with anybody. So what happened? My relationship started suffering. I became isolated. And I'll tell you, a global pandemic really didn't help. So what I found out was that there were a lot of people like me and like so many other people in the world that felt disconnected. And on the surface, it was a world that seemed really connected. So they felt out of place. And worse than that, I felt like I was completely alone and I couldn't talk to anybody about what was bothering me. That is the point. We don't all feel the same. And that's exactly where BetterHelp can come in. BetterHelp allows you to get the specific help you need for whatever eats away at you. They ask you target questions to set you up with the right therapist and talk to you about, well, really, whatever you want. And that's really the best part because you can cover big topics or small topics. BetterHelp will set you up with a counselor to meet your needs and discuss your needs. It's simple to use. It gives you access to a licensed therapist from the comfort of your home. So you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to find parking. You don't have to schedule time away from work. You can do it from the comfort of your home. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. You can start communicating with a licensed therapist in under 48 hours. So what are you waiting for? BetterHelp was a game changer for me, millions of others, and it can be a game changer for you too. That's why we have a special offer for rock and roll heaven listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash rockheaven. That's betterhelp B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash rockheaven. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast and helping me too. BetterHelp, Better Life. And
2: you actually use BetterHelp.
3: Oh, yes. I am a BetterHelp client and have been for Oh, it's been almost two years at this point.
2: Yeah, and I can honestly tell you guys that the change that I've seen in Will has been unfathomable. Um, he keeps a journal now. He works really close with his therapist. They they have meetings, and you know they they've got this really good connection. She knows how to talk to him. Uh, he is able to take things to her, you know, and and she can help unravel them. And so we really are advocates for BetterHelp and we really appreciate their sponsoring the show. So thank you so much. Please guys, make sure if you have questions about mental health, you know, we are not the experts, but BetterHelp is. Yes. And as, from what I understand, they have people that deal with couples therapy, individual stuff, you know, they, there's you don't have to just deal with, the one person that's in your city. If Correct. you're in a small town, it's the whole, it's the whole state. So you have this whole new world that opens up to you and you don't even have to travel for it.
3: So. Right. So you can get matched, I think, more easily with somebody who's an expert in your area. You when you sign up, you actually fill out a series of questions that help you establish who that best person is. And like you said, within 48 hours, you can be connected.
2: And you can talk to them at any time. You can send them a message. You can set up, they're
3: always there for you. Oh, absolutely. You can message them. Yeah. At any time, it all goes through their secure app. You can get a response back. If they're not available, you can actually reach out to, there's a hotline you can reach. So you always have somebody you can go to.
2: Yeah. So we're definitely advocates. So uh, after that ridiculously long intro, thank you for sticking with us guys. We just had a lot of things that we had to deal with today. So uh, we would like to start with Michael Jackson part 12. We are getting closer than ever before, guys.
3: We're, <laughs> we're closer than we've ever been. And now we're even closer. And now we're <laughs> even closer.
2: We're we're not gonna get out of 80 the 80s today. It's no, not, it's not crazy. gonna happen. It's it might happen episode 15. I don't know. So when we last left, Michael, he had been hospitalized for the fire that happened during the Pepsi commercial. And he was still in a lot of pain. And he would be in a lot of pain until the day he died. But of course, he is a Jackson, so you know. What You know what that means, right? The show must go on, right? That's literally what I have written down. (laughs) (laughs) It's like I knew. On Thursday, February 28th of 1984, the Grammys were held. And typically they're held at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles. And that night it was pure pandemonium. Like They had those big lights that you see in movies where they're like, oh, you know, showing today, we've got these crazy kids in uh, this movie, Casablanca, you know, that thing those lights the during
3: lights. the 1940s apparently
2: <laughs> you know what i'm talking about it was totally cliche and uh 24 year old michael arrived at the show with brooke shields on his arm and i want to say that michael didn't actually want to go to the award show with brooke but but she actually showed up at his house and asked him if he would consider taking her they had been friends for like two years and it's really unclear whether or not there's any kind of attraction between the two. But uh, after a little bit of back and forth, he agreed to take her. So arrived- seems,
3: this seems like almost a pattern for Michael Jackson, because if those of you who have listened to our series on Whitney Houston will remember that he would be at parties with Whitney and they were really good friends. There was no, according to either of them, there was no chemistry. There was no, there was nothing beyond friendship there. So it was almost like, you know, you're going to the prom with your friend.
2: Yeah, and that kind of what it was. I mean, they they would just go places together to be seen together. But the same thing happened with Tatum O'Neill that he, you know, he would see, he was seen with her and he kind of loved her, but it never really went anywhere. So they arrived in a white Rolls Royce just minutes before the ceremony began. And a bit of awkwardness happened at the door, actually with Tatum O'Neill. She was hanging out in front with four of her friends And she started screaming his name. And she was like, Michael, 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 pay attention. Hey, hi, hi. Because she had promised her friends that she would introduce them to Michael. And he just walked past and completely ignored her. And she turned to her friends and she was like, it's okay, I'll introduce you later.
3: Sounds like he just wasn't having it.
2: No, at the actual ceremony that night, Michael made history when he won 10 awards with 12 nominations because, wow. well, three of the nominations were in one category. <laughs> so he was up Still, against himself. <laughs> and if you're wondering whose record he broke, because he did break records, it was actually Motown veteran Stevie Wonder, who had won five Grammys for the 90, 1973, 1974 season. Oh, wow. Michael accepted the award for Album of the Year for Thriller, which by this time had sold 27 million records and was the biggest selling album in history and was still number one on the Billboard chart.
3: Still number one to this day, right?
2: Yep. And well, it it bounces back and forth between him and the Eagles. But um, then he comes out ahead, right? Occasionally. Hmm. Like it's, it's it's still back and forth. All Michael had to say when he was accepting the award was this is a great honor. I'm very happy. And then he walked off backstage after the awards. He didn't have much to say to the press. And it had already been made clear to the media that he was not available for interviews, only photos. Hmm. Of course, the media would have to ask somebody about Michael. And so they actually started asking the other winners how they felt about Michael. So
3: interesting.
2: couldn't have been very awkward. So when they right. talked to Quincy Jones, they started yelling out questions as Michael walked away. And one person screamed, what's your favorite song? Michael flipped his head back and said, my favorite things by Julie Andrews. The journalist laughed and said, are you kidding? And he said, nope. And he started singing the song and skipped down the hallway accompanied by four massive security guys. That he is left...
3: a sight to behold.
2: <laughs> he left the auditorium with Brooke Shields and Emmanuel Lewis. Three people <laughs> that have been in my kitchen.
3: Yeah. Because 80s. <laughs> It was the 80s, folks. a simpler time.
2: Yeah. Okay, so bouncing back to the Jackson 5, they had an upcoming victory tour that promised 40 concert dates. They were really hesitant to do this because Don King was actually still in the picture. Michael oh, felt geez. like they needed to have somebody come in and protect his interest. John was an excellent attorney, but he needed a hands-on manager since Weisner and Demand were now gone and Joseph was no longer handling him. And weirdly enough... Motown had just released a collection of songs by Michael that he had recorded in the early 70s. That album was called Farewell, My Summer Love 1984, which is a very misleading title since the songs were almost recorded 10 years earlier. The record only sold about about 100,000 copies, which was a pitiful number, considering that once that one was released, Thriller
3: had sold over 33 million copies. Yeah, it's insane. Those numbers are just not numbers I could wrap my head around at all.
2: Yeah, like 100000 would probably be good for anybody, but not for Michael.
3: Yeah, no, it's a a letdown for him.
2: Yeah, Michael felt like Motown was trying to cash in on his fame, and he didn't like it. He said, I have no control over that music. It's not fair. I don't even like some of those songs. I need someone to stop things like that from happening in the future. And I, I totally get that, because remember that in perpetuity... Contract that Joseph had signed on behalf of the kids, mm-hmm. and they recorded something astronomical, like 750 songs, and it was at Motown's discretion when and how to release them. So Motown still had a grip on him even years after signing with Epic.
3: Yeah, and anything that had the Jackson Five name in any iteration, correct? Yeah, it's just crazy.
2: Yeah, and so Michael took a lot of meetings with managers, including Colonel Tom Parker. That name should be familiar, even though we haven't done a series on him yet. But that was Elvis Presley's manager. Huh. Yeah, Michael actually turned him down. Seven wow. months earlier, in August of 1983, Michael asked Epic's record head of promotion, Frank DeLeo, if he'd be interested in managing him. And it should be noted, Frank's nickname is Tukey. That never comes up again just wanted to say it. (laughs) Just throwing it out there. He was 36 and born and raised in Pittsburgh, and he got his start in the record industry, an assistant record promoter in the Midwest in the early seventies. When he was 21, he landed a job with RCA Records New York as the national director of promotions. Hmm. He turned that label's promotional department into the world's finest so a few years after joining epic frank was invited into the recording studio to watch his michael recorded thriller it was then that he and michael developed a relationship even though they were absolute polar opposites they became really close hmm. it also helped that frank was a friend and confidant of walter who was the president of cbs records michael understood how politically valuable those relationships could be to him However, Michael told Frank that if he took the job as a manager, he would not allow him to manage anyone else. He had to be exclusive to Michael. And Frank agreed. Now, I've said this before, and I think it bears repeating. Michael did not want to go on the victory tour. Right. But if he had to do it, he wanted more control. So if he knew that it was a flop, it could hurt his career. That would be the end of his solo
3: career. Yeah, he had farther to fall.
2: Yeah, so like he he couldn't it wasn't a risk he was really willing to take because at the time he had the number 1 album in the country. He had the highest selling album of all time. He had 10 Grammys that he won. Like he he was riding high. If this tour failed, it could really affect his career. Whereas his brothers were just trying to like make some money, you know, in his eyes, we're just trying to make some money. You know, he felt like he had a lot riding on it.
3: So yeah, I mean, they were kind of more of the blue collar sort of musicians at that point, you know, like a gig is a gig. But I think, like you said, his, his reputation was larger than life at this point.
2: Yeah. So Michael now had his own manager and the brothers felt like they needed to have one too. So they hired Jack Nancy, who had been the group's road manager during the early days of Motown. So driving a further wedge between them, he had his manager and they had theirs. And to make matters worse, Michael wanted nothing to do with Don. And fang- Frank really understood why. Don had been criticized for his handling of the now defunct U.S. Boxing Championship on ABC TV. He had also uh, heard of King denying that he had skimmed money from a closed search fight
4: hmm. and sold
2: $500 tickets to boxing matches and didn't report them in sales. And of course... You know, he had a murder conviction. So like for Michael, Don was a criminal and he really put them in jeopardy. So with all this compounding, Michael gave a series of instructions through John to Don, stating that he could not communicate with anyone on Michael's behalf without his permission. All of the money was to be collected by Michael's representatives and not by King. King could not approach any other promoters or sponsors or any other people on Michael's behalf. And finally, Don was the promoter, but could not do anything without Michael's prior
3: approval. Literally, is- if
2: Don King wanted to sneeze, he'd have to ask Michael's people
3: first. Yeah, but this is all well and good, but it's aimed at a guy who's clearly known for not following any rules. So what do they think is going to happen?
2: Well, I mean, to be honest, I see a lot of Don in Joe and a lot of Joe and Don. So I think that that Michael knew how to handle
3: a person like Don. And also Michael's a megastar, so I'm sure that helped.
2: Yeah, well, Don honestly didn't understand Michael's demands, but he didn't really have a choice. (laughs) Still, he felt like Michael was too easily swayed by the opinions of his white manager and his white lawyer. Those were his exact words. And he actually went to the press and said that Basically, Michael had no one black around him, and that might have been true, but Don should not have gone to the press and said that. Michael wanted him fired immediately. And about that time... The brothers were also pretty much over Don's antics as well. So they brought in Chuck Sullivan, who was the head of the stadium management corporation of Foxborough, Massachusetts, and the former owner of the New England Patriots football team.
3: How about that?
2: Yes. He was kind of brought in as sort of a babysitter for Don. (laughs) So... He would be the one that was actually organizing the concerts. He was also able to convince the brothers to allow Irving Azov, the head of MCA, to come on board as the tour consultant. And of course, Joe Jackson was there fighting for every scrap that he could get to make sure that Don King didn't overshadow him. So like you have Don and Joe, and they're just trying to be the lights. And I mean, this must have been, you know, cover up the little kids ears right now, guys. This
3: sounds just like a shit show. (laughs) The egos in that room would just bust the walls out. I mean, that's insane.
2: And then you had poor Catherine, who was just literally there to help convince Michael to do something when he didn't want to do it.
3: Still didn't divorce Joe, right? No. Yeah. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible.
2: When Michael told Frank that he had said that the Pepsi accident was a bad omen, he said... You have to believe me when I say this, there is trouble ahead. Also in 1984, Michael Jackson got the third nose job of his career. After determining that the last two weren't good enough, he wanted it to be thinner. Now the tour actually did give birth to one small thing. That tour, the Somewhere in Europe tour in 1983, gave us the budapest live album which was released in 1984 by Manfred Man's Earth
3: Band. Oh, <laughs> I was gonna say that's not the Jacksons.
2: That's not the Jacksons. <laughs> beep, 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 that's beep, beep, not that tour. Oh who's gonna do it?
3: TJ's oh, not here.
2: I TJ's not here. So I guess I mean default you have to
3: do it man. Oh I have to? Yeah. Can I can I use the flighty voice? <sighs> I don't know if the world's ready for flighty. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we can we can try it. I don't know. Okay, oh, why right don't here. you
2: try Flighty, kids? Okay. I'm so sorry about for what's about to happen. Flighty is
3: Flighty's <laughs> making an appearance. Okay, Flighty's
2: making an appearance. Okay,
3: ladies and gentlemen, oh, God, the federally mandated Manfred Mann's <laughs> Earth Band <laughs> reference of the podcast has been satisfied. Oh my God! I just want to point out that that voice came out of. We were doing something for Gish. 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 And. LD, Wish. LD seriously handed me a puppet and just said, do it in a funny voice. And that's what came out of this ridiculous dragon puppet. We got it like Barnes and Noble for $25. And um, yep. that is how flighty made his first appearance.
2: Yep. Yep. So uh, the, if you're wondering what that voice is, that was Will's puppet voice for a scavenger hunt that we do for charity every it's year. It's a dragon <laughs> yeah,
3: who, who has like a tongue sticking out of the side of his mouth. It's it, kind of a silly looking puppet.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I couldn't take him back because he had a hole in him. So we We now have Flighty. We still have Flighty. We'll post Flighty on our socials if I can find Flighty.
3: Yes, Flighty will make an appearance.
2: (laughs) All right. Back to the Jacksons. In May of 1984... John Bronco received a telephone call from the transportation secretary, Elizabeth Dole, asking if Michael would donate Beat wait, It. Wait,
3: wait, wait. That's not the Elizabeth Dole, is it?
2: Yes, it is.
3: That's what I'm saying. Is it? Wow. Okay.
2: Yes. Yes, it is. Huh, how about that? She was calling to see if uh, Michael would donate Beat It as background music for a 30-second television commercial and a 60-second radio spot for drunk driving. When John presented the idea to Michael, he said that it was tacky which by the way, hello, pot, kettle. I'm going to introduce you to John Merrick in just a little while. Um, oh, wait that's going to a good one. <laughs> John told Michael that he would call Elizabeth and tell her that he wasn't interested, but Michael got an idea. He said, let me see if I can get some kind of award from the White House and then I'll give him the song. See what you can negotiate. And John asked, like, what do you want? So Michael came up with a wish list. He wanted to go to the White House. He wanted to be on stage with the president, who at the time... Was Ronald Reagan and he wanted to get an award from him. He also wanted to meet Nancy, which of course was the first lady, Nancy Reagan. The whole works. John promised that he would try. So he called up Elizabeth and told her that she could have the song if she dreamed up some kind of you know, humanitarian award that the president could present to Michael. And funny enough, she agreed. The Wait. president agreed, and the first lady agreed. Wow. The presentation was set for the 14th of May, 1984, and 2,000 people cheered as Ronald Reagan stepped onto the stage of the White House's South Lawn with Nancy and Michael. <laughs> I'm going to do my best uh, Ronald that's Reagan It's really person.
3: like a, a political mad lib at this point. <laughs> I'm going to
2: do my best Ronald Reagan impression. Oh, it's going
3: to be good. Well, if
2: this isn't a thriller, we haven't seen this many people since we left China, and to think you all came to see me.
3: <laughs> uh, Mr. Was- President, did you... Uh, I'm sorry, I thought it was him. I just... <laughs> was floored we should we should have a side channel of just our impressions that's it no one will listen to it it should be a slap nuts oh that'd be good (laughs) the rock and roll heaven slap nuts impressions hour
2: yeah i am terrible at impressions i i can't ld for the
3: full hour oh so Oh, like mine are any better? The best thing I have is a dragon. That's not really an impression. It's just a silly voice.
2: Uh, We still have to apologize to the people of Italy for what my brother did to them.
3: Although I will say his dolly was pretty on point. when We had our dolly off. Yes, frightening. That was the Whitney Houston series. (laughs) Yep, you can check that out too on Rock and Roll Heaven. We're available on Spotify and Stitcher. Wait, wait, wait. okay, no, go
2: ahead. Anyway, Michael and the first lady walked up to the podium and the president noted that Michael was proof of what you can accomplish with a lifestyle free of alcohol or drug abuse. Young people and old respected that. And if Americans followed his example, they could face up to the problems of drinking and driving, and they could, in Michael's words, beat it. And after that, the president handed him a plaque. The only words that Michael spoke were, I'm very honored. Thank you, Mr. President. Oh, and Mrs. Reagan, too. He added as an afterthought. Then he giggled as if he suddenly realized where he was standing, you know, like you have that moment of like, oh, crap.
3: (laughs) I'm on the South Lawn of the White House. (laughs) Hey, LD, I hate to get away from what we're talking about, but we do need to take a short break for, you know, our sponsors.
2: Okay. And we're back. Awesome. I hope that those ads were not only informative, but things that you can use in your everyday life. Now let's get back to Michael Jackson. So only six news photographers actually covered the event. Each one wore a white glove on their hand and they shot pictures of Reagan and Jackson. The entire event took about nine minutes. But before they left, the entire entourage was given a special tour of the White House. Michael was fascinated by Andrew Jackson and his military jacket, much like the blue sequin one he had worn on that day. After the tour, the group was scheduled to spend some time with the president and the first lady, but things turned bad because Michael arrived at the diplomacy reception room where he was supposed to meet privately with the Reagans. He had been told that only a couple children of staff members of the White House were going to be present. And instead he walked into a room with about 75 adults. What? Which, yeah. Don't lie to don't lie to Michael Jackson. Michael only got a couple feet into the room. He took a quick look around and then just bolted Frank and the rest of the entourage followed him. He was furious because he told he was told there was only supposed to be a couple kids he was assured by the white house aides that the kids would be brought in and then things got even weirder when nancy started whispering to one of michael's staff about his nose job the staffer said nothing because he he didn't even acknowledge the first lady because he knew better than to say anything about michael jackson's private life even well, you, with the first
3: lady but you she said this you said this is bad i would say this is off the wall you're fired i mean it's a thriller get out of here the situation's just dangerous okay
2: (laughs) and i'm muting you now
3: oh no so you can't spray me because i record in the other room now oh 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 really oh nuts uh never mind we're doing a show no (laughs) this is abuse For those of you playing along at home, LD is opening the door to the studio, and here comes one of the cats. And oh crap! Ah, ah watch the microphone. Ah. ah, not the coffee machine. <laughs> well, uh, glad we got that out of the way.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, our federally mandated sporting spraying
3: of will the throw has been satisfied.
2: <laughs> All right, so so Nancy is like whispering over to this aide, and they're ignoring her, but she's not giving up. She said she doesn't understand why a boy wanted to look like a girl. She was also confused why he would only wear a glove on one hand or why he was wearing his sunglasses all the time. And finally, the employee broke a silence and said, hey, listen, you don't know the half of it, he said, rolling his eyes. And he looked at her expecting her to laugh, but she didn't. Instead, she stared at him for a moment and then said, well, he is talented. And I think that that is all you should be concerned about.
3: Wow. Okay.
2: Um, I just want to take a moment to let you guys know that there is a, a podcast that uh, I listen to called Hollywood Crime Scene. And they have a whole episode about Nancy Reagan. And apparently she was popular with the gents. For one particular reason.
3: Is this appropriate for our podcast? Can it is I...
2: not. That is why I'm being thinly veiled. Basically, ah. saying that she was very popular with people of the male persuasion in Hollywood. Hmm. Apparently, don't at me. I'm not the one that started
3: this. Because if I remember correctly, the hosts of that show are bawdy.
2: They are very bawdy, and I love quite. them. Yes. Because they say things I could never. <laughs> quite
3: quite salacious. Yes.
2: So uh, hopping back to the Victory Tour, they announced that tour in June, which was now to be scheduled to begin in Kansas on the 6th of July. Don and Chuck came up with a concept that was pretty unique at the time. I, I say unique, I didn't say good. You could, it was, it was incredibly convoluted, but you'll see why this was not a great thing. Now, if you wanted tickets to the concert, you could buy tickets for $30, but they would only be sold in lots of four only. Ordering tickets did not guarantee that you would get them. What? The names of those who ordered would be selected randomly by a computer, drawing coupons out that had to be cut out of advertisements published in local newspapers. Okay? What the... So, therefore, a Jackson fan had to spend $120 in postal money orders, plus a $2 service fee for each ticket and the coupon in a standard number 10 envelope to the address printed on the advertisements. So if that sounds like a
3: lot of work for a ticket, it was. How did society function? I mean, we have Venmo, we have, you know, it's just what the hell? So
2: if if you happen to be a lucky winner that was allowed to see the victory tour, you didn't know if you were going or which show you would be attending until two days before the concert and if the mail was delayed the tickets could arrive after the concert and of course the tickets were too high for middle-class kids who wanted
3: them and i'm guessing that If there was any disruption of mail, like you pointed out, or you couldn't go, your money's already, the the money order is cash. So that's, that's gone. I mean,
2: well, the thing that got me is said, you didn't know which show you would be attending. Now I could understand that for multiple nights to say that they were doing three nights in Kansas. You didn't know if you're going on night one, night two, night three, but if you try to get tickets for Kansas and they gave you tickets for Kentucky, did you have like two days to fly out? That was the part I was really unclear about.
3: Yeah, because you could wind up in Reno, right? Yeah. Huh,
2: wow. Now, as a footnote in the book that I'm reading, it actually said that the United States Postal Office must have been particularly happy about the plan because each money order cost $1.55 at the time. So if 12 million fans purchased money orders at the post office, they would collect $18 million. So in all of 1983, the year prior to this, they only collected 124 million in money orders So this concert alone would cover over a third of their initial profit from the year before. That is bananas. Yeah. And the other distasteful thing that they did was they figured out a loophole that meant that they wouldn't actually have to pay for the ad in the the newspaper because they could post them for free as a public service announcement.
3: And I'm going to tell you that everything you just said about this ticket thing sounds just insanely illegal. There's no way it's legitimate.
2: Well, it's not technically not illegal because it's a sole entity. Like, I don't think legally, I don't think there's a problem legally.
3: Okay. Unethical. Uh, absolutely.
2: Unethical. Oh yeah. Oh, not, no doubt. Absolutely unethical. That's not the problem. The uh, The problem is that most middle-class families couldn't afford $120 tickets and they could be like crap seats. You could be in the front seat or you could be in seat ZZZ section
3: Milky Way. And yeah, I mean, you could live in Massachusetts and find out two days before you have seats behind a pole in Bozeman, Montana. It's just, it's bananas.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it yeah, it was not, I don't think it's illegal, unethical, absolutely and unfair like that's just unfair because it's you could see the greed now the thing is the brothers seemed okay with it but Michael fought against it he said there would be backlash well, I don't know how you could possibly think there wouldn't be backlash with something like this uh, Michael thought that the tickets should be $20 but tickets for the Rolling Stone and Bruce Springsteen who were really big at the time were about $60 each he just wanted a simple $20 ticket price And he didn't want to do lots. He didn't want to do money orders. He didn't want to do coupons. He just, he just wanted to vote and he lost five to one. After that, he went to Frank and told him that this would be his last tour with the guys. The plan was finally made public and the fans were outraged. Like, how could you not be? The Los Angeles Herald Examiner had a telephone poll with the question, are Michael Jackson fans being taken advantage of? I want to point out what that question was are Michael Jackson fans being taken advantage of, not are the Jackson 5 fans. Right. So they're already targeting Michael. Of the 2,795
3: people who responded, 90% of them said yes. And in fairness, I would say that majority of people would be there to see Michael at this point.
2: Yeah, but it's not fair if this is a Jackson tour to completely just point all the blame at Michael.
3: He's a lightning rod at this point. I mean, like you said, he had the most to lose. The other brothers are are there doing their thing. They're not going to get the attention he's going to get. No, it's true. So the newspapers published an
2: editorial chastising the Jacksons. Other newspapers across the country followed suit, saying things like the Jackson tour isn't about music. It's about greed and arrogance. And that was from the Washington columnists Maxwell Glenn and Cody Shear. Things looked extremely bleak and of course, a lot fell on Michael because he was at the time, like you said, the lightning rod. He was the most famous person in the world. Despite everything, The first coupons were printed in the Kansas City Times and scores of fans waited in the dark for the paper. The Times published an extra 20,000 coupons to meet their demands. Postal employees were ready with the 140,000 money orders from the expected avalanche, and those sold out fast. Jeez. At the time, Michael really wasn't sure how to handle the matter. He just wanted everything to go away. Finally, an open letter appeared in the Dallas Morning News that hit Michael hard. 11-year-old LaDonna Jones wrote that she was saving her pennies to see the Jacksons, but that she couldn't possibly have saved enough to buy four tickets. She very pointedly asked Michael, how could you, of all people, be so selfish?
3: Okay, that stings. That That's a tough,
2: Really, really,
4: <sighs>
2: yeah, that, that really hurt him. Uh, so one of his aides showed Michael the letter and he was absolutely livid. He was upset and he knew that greed and selfishness was at the heart of the tour. He knew that, but his family had already made more money than most people ever would make in a lifetime. And it took a child's sadness to force him into action. He called a meeting with Joseph, Don, Chuck, and flatly said, change the policy. It is a ripoff. You know it. I know it. Now change it or I won't tour. Good. Michael would not discuss the matter and the situation wasn't changed. So he said that the brothers would have to tour without him. The next day, plans were made to change the system. Good. Yeah. I I, I do kind of dig it when Michael throws his weight around to make other people happy.
3: Yeah. Especially when you're talking about an 11-year-old who's an saving 11-year-old her piggy bank to go to this concert. It's just... Uh.
2: Yeah. So Michael had checked into a hotel in Birmingham, Alabama on June 26th for a week of meetings about the tour. And so he was checking in and he became so dizzy, he had to lean on one of the bodyguards for support. I should tell you at this point, Michael had dropped from 125 to 105 pounds. Wow. He used to be 125. Now he's 105. And I think that I brought this up. If not, what am I even doing with my life? He was actually on a microbiotic diet. And so he was living off of cashews, pecans, seeds, Herbs and spices.
3: It's not the weirdest thing that subjects of our show have lived off of. No, We've James seen we some...
2: lived off milk and hot
3: peppers. Something like that. Yeah. So
2: yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> but but that's scary. Yeah, like that is frightening. 125 is
3: you don't have 20 to lose at that point. You don't. You're 190. Yeah. Losing 20 pounds, okay. But when you're 125,
2: yeah, 20 pounds. So he actually he kind of it's funny because you're always yelling at me about remembering to eat because I'll get so involved it's in true. That, yeah, like I'll forget to eat. get super
3: focused and you don't eat and it drives me crazy.
2: <laughs> and I'm sorry for that. But Michael's idea of food was if I didn't have to eat to live, I would never eat at all. He had a particularly grumpy meeting with his brothers and the attorneys and the managers, which took place on a telephone conference call later that day. But by the time that was over, Michael was fed up. He was pissed. He got into a freight elevator. So remember that he always travels in freight elevators. He's been doing that since he was a kid. He wouldn't take like the normal elevator for people. He would just take freight elevators.
3: Interesting. Uh,
2: He leaned up against the wall and slowly slid down until he was sitting on the floor. Somebody tried to help him up to his feet, but he was too exhausted to stand. The thing is, Michael is extremely hardworking and very persistent. So Michael held a press conference on the 5th of July, which was going to be the day before the concert was supposed to take place. He was announcing the new ticket system. Marlon ran and Tito accompanied him. To counteract the charge that he was greedy and doing the show only for profit, Michael announced that he intended to donate all of the money from this tour to his favorite charity. Moreover, he chose to release 2,000 tickets into each city, which would be donated to disadvantaged kids who otherwise wouldn't be able to attend a concert. The new ticket system would just be an over-the-counter system, which would go into effect on their third stop. At the end, Michael didn't take any questions. And just in case you're wondering, Michael did arrange for LaDonna Jones to receive a set of four complimentary tickets to the show. And she was chauffeured to that show by a limousine. Michael actually met her after the show. And she recalled, he asked me if I had any good seats. They didn't turn out to be very good seats, but it was fun anyway. (laughs) So- I'm really glad that she got to go because like the whole time I was reading this book, I'm like, but what
3: about LaDonna? I just want her to go. Which shows he cares about the fans. I mean, it's not just about the money. It's not about the, the reputation. It, it shows he actually cares about the, the people that enjoy his music. So,
2: yeah. And, and the big thing is he does, he does really care about the kids. He does care about the absolutely. So at the same time as the tour was happening, CBS released the Victory album. Not counting the 1981 live album, this was the first album in four years for the Jackson 5, so it was widely anticipated. The album features Michael's duet with Mick Jagger on State of Shock, which wasn't so much a song as a glorified Rolling Stones riff. The best cut in the album is written by Jackie. Another writer on that song was actually Kathy Wakefield, who was a Motown veteran. And so she actually helped co-write the song with Jackie, and it's called Torture. So since we haven't had a song in this episode, let's listen to that now. And this is Torture by the Jacksons.
3: forgot about the army of darkness style skeletons that were in this video
2: yeah that's (sighs) it is a very very weird music video are you ready for a fun fact fun fact uh the fun fact is please go watch this music video because freaking cuckoo banana pants you owe it to yourself yeah okay so the fun fact is actually like michael does do the singing on this song uh but he sort of only kind of appears in the music video. He, he couldn't appear in the actual music video because of some scheduling conflicts, but that did not stop the producers from having him appear anyway. What they actually did was they went to Madame Tussauds wax museum, rented the dummy of Michael and used that in the video.
3: When you showed that to me, it's all I was looking at. It's just full focus on it.
2: It's so obvious. It's so out of place. And it's like the final thing where they like have his arm up. Like it is obvious that that is not a human. It's
3: quite hilarious, actually.
2: (laughs) Okay. Uh, Also just stepping to the side, because if you, if you've seen the music video, it does have a creepy vibe to it. It's got, you know, uh, like Will said, the sort of army of darkness, Skeletons that are moonwalking and spiders and glass breaking and creatures with like these long fingers. It's weird. It's a weird music video. Now, at the same time in 1984, singer Rockwell released Somebody's Watching Me, which was released in January of 1984. And that also features Who on their album. Oh, it's Michael Jackson. I mean, it's but, Michael Jackson. Yeah, clearly. Honestly, if Michael Jackson had not done, and no offense to Rockwell, I'm sure that you have a fantastic voice. But like, it is a forgettable song. The only reason why that song is like uber popular is because Michael Jackson had guest vocals on it. So, um, now Rockwell is Kennedy William Gordy, who is Barry Gordy's son. So Michael was busy in the 80s, and The 80s seemed like just that time for creepy, vibey music because you have Rockwell's Somebody's Watching Me, which featured Michael Jackson as a guest vocalist. And then you've got Torture, which is a very creepy music video. (laughs) It was just kind of what was going on at that point. Yeah. Now, according to Michael's book, Moonwalk, the response that they got was wonderful and the fans were great. But Michael was unhappy with the show. He didn't have the time or opportunity to perfect it the way that he wanted to perfect it. He was really disappointed in the staging of Billie Jean. He said, I wanted it to be so much more than it was. I didn't like the lighting. I never got my steps quite the way I liked them. It killed me to accept these things and have to settle for doing it the way that I did. So speaking of the actual performance, on the first night of the show, the fans began to assemble outside before sunrise. Inside the auditorium was a 500 person security force and a thousand other stage workers that were geared up for this massive event. Now, gravy. I'm going to, I'm going to make this a direct, I'm taking this direct quote from the book, The Magic, The Madness, The Whole Story by J. Randy Tarabinelli. So this is a direct quote from that book. If you're curious, arise all the world and behold the kingdom. A voice boomed as the show began for the 43,000 fans, elaborate George Lucas styled computerized staging and lighting systems were the hallmark of the concert that included a hidden hydraulic stage that presented the group. Michael in zebra print, vertical striped pants, and spangly shirt, white socks with the 1950s penny loafers, and white gloves is it. They, wow. they, they appeared like they were under the earth or on a waffle grid, basically, in this blinding light that could be seen in silhouettes. The brothers marched slowly down a staircase, approaching the microphones, removed their sunglasses, and broke into their first song. They were red and green lasers, crimson strobe lights, purple smoke bombs, basically magical illusions and fireworks. 18 songs boomed on from 100 outdoor speakers. So the brothers played everything from I Want You Back to Shake Your Body Down to the Ground, but the brothers did not actually perform any songs from the new Victory album. It was later explained by Marlon that Michael refused to rehearse them or perform them before a live audience. Jermaine performed three of his own songs. Michael's solo hits, Beat It and Billie Jean were saved for the end of the concert. He was in excellent vocal shape. He was now more of a real singer now than ever before. By the time the group finished their performance, the audience had been whipped up into a frenzy. Even though most of the audience members had to settle for a distorted image of the brothers that appeared on these like huge overhanging television screens that were peppered throughout the gargantuan stadium. Did you just laugh because I used the word gargantuan? I wasn't
3: expecting it, so it caught me off guard. <laughs> it
2: it was pretty obvious that the people that had who had gone through all the trouble to get their tickets and see this show, they were only there to see one person. That was Michael. At the first three shows in Kansas City, that truth was painfully clear. Michael knew in his heart that he should have never agreed to do this tour, but it wasn't for the reasons that the ticket prices were super high or the promotional issues or Don King or Pepsi, he truly felt like he was a front man for an act that he no longer felt like a part of. And the brothers weren't comfortable in their role as his supporting players. As one critic made it clear, Marlon, Jermaine, Randy, and Tito seem most ill-at-eased extras at their own celebration. So that tells you kind of the mindset that they were at. There was a lot of jealousy running through the group at this time. And Jermaine made a comment to a reporter that that kind of brought to light the dissension within the ranks. He said, even though Michael is very talented, and has a lot of success, it's been due to timing and a little bit of luck. It could have been him or it could have easily been me. But now I'm doing a lot of things. I'm the hottest brother. It'll be the same when my brothers do their thing, which is like,
3: yeah, weird to <laughs> say, right about that. Just, just wait till a certain album comes out. We all know what it is.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thrillers already come out.
3: <laughs> yeah, but no, there's another one that's yes. coming up now
2: yes yes there is i mean Probably there's enough. several
3: that are coming out but i know there's one more immediate than the rest
2: <laughs> episode 14 we're getting right. right
3: episode like 26 we will no it's that 14
2: out. i'm working on it right are now you, I sure? it. It's okay. 14. it is 14 <clears throat> hand to heavens so jealousy wasn't the only thing that put a damper on the tour. the family had begun to fall apart and the victory tour seemed to be hastening its destruction That is a direct quote. That is a copy and paste. I did not say that. At one point, Michael was so upset with his brothers that he suffered from exhaustion and dehydration that had to be put under doctor's care. As a result of the pressure, Michael became increasingly difficult, and some of his demands seemed very unreasonable. At one point, he threatened not to perform unless a certain publicist working on the tour was fired. That publicist had apparently allowed something to be printed that Michael did not appreciate and his his brothers ignored that threat. Then at the last possible minute, right before the show was to start, Frank DeLeo announced that Michael would not appear unless the publicist was dismissed on the spot. And then of course, the publicist was fired. Frank DeLeo seems to be doing a lot of heavy lifting. Him and John... (laughs) have
3: a have a a big full plate well he was also brought in to kind of keep an eye on don king correct
2: no it was more of a management like tour management for michael like that was
3: was i thought it was kind of a watching the watchman sort of concept
2: sort of charles sullivan was actually a chuck sullivan got Okay. that guy we actually had had to up. about chuck a lot no frank is actually his manager like keeping tabs on him got it him out so He was the one that was friends with uh, Walter, the president of CBS. Other things happened on this tour, too, that really started to drive a wedge into the family. At the beginning of the tour, they agreed that only performing members of the family would travel in the Jackson van. But then Michael started showing up with Emanuel Lewis. Before the tour was even halfway over, the brothers began to travel in separate vans and limousines.
3: I just can't believe Emanuel Lewis has become a viable side character in this story. He's just, he's everywhere.
2: Yeah, and I think eventually they start. I told you guys uh, the last episode, I think, where he had checked in to the hotel with emmanuel as father and son.
3: Yes, you did and share it, that with us.
2: And at that point, I think his parents are like, "Nah, no, nah, we're we're good. All right, thank you, though." But he's so still think, spending
3: time with Michael. He's still on tour with Michael, so.
2: Yeah, now, before this tour is even halfway over, those brothers began The brothers began to travel in separate vans and limousines. Jackie, who had joined the, joined the tour midway through and on crutches, wasn't able to perform. What happened, I think, was he either broke his leg or sprained his ankle. Somehow he ended up on crutches and wasn't able to join the tour. Um, but he, he wasn't able to perform on the tour, I should say. Um, he joined the tour midway, but really wasn't able to, you know, do all the dance moves and stuff like that. So Marlon, Randy, and Tito were in one vehicle. Jermaine was in one by himself. And then Michael was in another one alone. When they traveled by air, the brothers used a commercial airline and Michael would travel by private jet. In New York, when the group had to fly by helicopter to Giant Stadium, it was agreed that no outsiders would be in a helicopter.
3: Then Michael showed up with Julian Lennon. And the people, it's just like a mad lib of celebrities and politicians. It's it's utterly bonkers.
2: it really is. Like we we said it before with David Bowie is like, your life is written by a Mad Lib. Now, at one point, the Jacksons received an offer from a producer who wanted to pay them millions of dollars to film the show and then release it on the home video market when the tour was over with. They thought it was a great idea, except for Michael. He threatened to draw out of the tour if they struck a deal. And because he disagreed with it, they lost the deal. But here's the thing. Three nights later, the group was on stage and cameras were everywhere. Michael had arranged for the show to be videotaped, making a promise that he would give the brothers a copy, but they never actually saw one. He also tried to get them to agree to let him release the video to the marketplace, and then they blocked him from doing it. This is a mess.
3: There's a lot going on here.
2: It got so bad on this tour that by the end of it, they were staying on separate floors of their hotel in each city and refused to talk to each other on their way to the stadium Jeez. during the final weeks of the tour, Joseph and Don started to make plans to take the victory tour to Europe. And then when Michael heard about it, he was pissed. He did not believe it. He sent a message to Joseph and Don through Frank DeLeo. It read, I will absolutely not be going to Europe with the victory tour. Good luck to you, Michael. I mean, I think he said everything that he needed to in that statement.
3: Got to pick up that mic after he dropped it, so. Yeah.
2: On December 9th, 1984, after the last song of the evening, Michael hollered out from the Los Angeles stage saying that, this is our last and final show. It has been a long 20 years and we love you all. That was it. This sent his family spiraling. Now, I am not going to read the response from Don King because it contains... Some incredibly harsh language. And I refuse to say certain words on our podcast. You can use your imagination or
3: read the book. I was was this in the book or is this online somewhere?
2: This is, I, I found it in the book, The Madness, uh, The Magic, ah. The Madness, the whole story. And the copy that I've got, it's on page 325. Oh, wait, is that then the book number that Snape tells them to chain, turn their?
3: i don't know if it was but the way you delivered it was almost an homage to alan rickman
2: oh sweet so well done oh thank you that's i can add that to my uh my ever-growing list of impressions that i can do
3: (laughs) yeah you're alan rickman it's going to be up there with well we'll we'll let the fans figure this out as the series goes on
2: (laughs) well after michael read those comments he only had three words to say sue his ass. And that's what he (laughs) told John. Michael had issues with him since day one. John calmed Michael down as he was very good at doing. He had to convince him just to let the matter go. And it did take some convincing, but he did eventually talk him off the ledge. And as promised, Michael donated all of his proceeds from the Victory Tour, nearly $5 million to the T.J. Martell Foundation for Cancer Research and the United Negro College Fund and the Ronald McDonald camp for good times. When Michael wrote about the Victory Tour in his autobiography, he does not mention Don, Joseph, Catherine, Chuck Sullivan, or any other principal players behind the scene. In fact, he has a completely different take on the whole affair, saying that, I felt powerful in those days of Victory. I felt on top of the world. I felt determined. That tour was like, we are a mountain. We came here to share our music with you. We all have something that we want to tell you. At the beginning of the show, we rose out of the stage and came down the stairs. The opening with the dramatic and bright lights and captured the whole feeling of our show. When the lights came on and they saw us, the roof would come off the place. The response we got was wonderful and the fans were great, but I became unhappy with our show. I don't have the time or opportunity to perfect it the way I wanted to. Also in Michael's account, he has a small explanation about what the tour was actually going to be called, which was the final curtain. So the family had realized that it was going to be their last tour that they would do together, but they decided not to put the emphasis on that. Michael actually states, I enjoyed the tour. I knew it was going to be a long road. And in the end, it was probably too long. The best part of it for me was seeing the children in the audience. Every night there'd be a number of them who had gotten all dressed up. They were so excited. I was truly inspired by the kids on the tour kids of all ethnic groups and ages. It's been my dream since I was a child to somehow unite the people of the world through love and music. And I still get goosebumps when I hear the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. I wish that song could be an anthem for the world. To sum it all up, he said that it was nice playing with his brothers again. They were all together. He enjoyed the tour, but whether or not he wanted to admit it publicly, this was pretty much the end of the Jackson 5. Now, I do want to say that uh, I didn't write anything about this because i of course this is about michael but during the victory tour i guess janet eloped really yeah i did not know that everybody was afraid to talk to michael about it because you know he was so close to janet and so he was shocked and it was actually quincy jones's little daughter who was the one that broke the news to him (laughs) so wow Yeah. So I don't, I don't want to get too deep into it because, you know, it's, this is about Michael, but yeah, Janet eloped. And I think eventually the, the marriage was annulled. So,
3: you know, I didn't know, know she was married. So, I mean, I know, I think she got married later in life, but I didn't know about this one.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, You know, I'm I'm sure later on we could talk a little bit more about it, but this happened on the tour. So you can imagine I'm saying I'm bringing this up because it's even putting more pressure on Michael. Like, it's just like one extra thing that Michael has to think about and worry about. So, you know, he's dropping weight. He's stressed out with his brothers. He's firing people left and right. He's got people like Don King that are just, you know, super toxic in his life this was just not a good time for him. And, you know, it, he kind of does take the high road in his book by not mentioning any of those folks and just basically saying that he had a good time. He felt cool. He felt powerful. And it made him excited that he he could bring so much joy to people. And so, you know, that's kind of where we're going to end this episode tonight.
3: On a real high note, I might add. Ah! <laughs>
2: Yeah. So, uh, that, that, like I said, that's pretty much it for this episode. Um, I'll read our socials and then we will say goodnight and do our songs. All right. right. So, uh, if you would like to get a hold of us, we have many, many different ways that you can do that. You can check us out on Twitter at rock and roll LT. You can check out our Instagram at rock and roll heaven LT. Our Facebook is rock and roll heaven pod. Still not saying our website. And you can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And guess what, guys? We are on TikTok.
3: And we have more than one video.
2: Yes. Uh, We decided, you know, what's going to be a place for, you know, updates, fun facts, that kind of stuff. Right now, mainly our content is fun facts. So uh, if you do like that portion of the show, pretty much right now, that's what is up there we try to post those at least once a day uh you know so please go over there follow us on tiktok uh we are at rock and roll heaven pod you'll get to see my weird face in a series of videos but uh, i we, we like to have fun and be on the curve so you know after tiktok showed up about 5 years ago uh we're finally on it <laughs> always ahead of hey, the,
3: the curve better late than never <laughs> yep
2: and um just make sure to check out all the other Pantheon Podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. All right. So that's it for this episode. Mr. Will, do you have anything you'd like to tell the audience?
3: I think we told them a lot tonight. And this victory tour was a complete and utter fiasco. <laughs> I mean,
2: it really does. And it- we had more than one sighting of Emanuel
3: Lewis. So I know, but well, that, that makes me happy because, you know, Webster. But uh, to that, I say thank you, folks, and take care of yourselves. And appreciate you joining us.
2: Yeah. And uh, just to wrap the show up, I am actually going to end this episode the way that they ended the victory tour with the song, Shake Your Body Down to the Ground. And uh, I hope that you guys have a great week. We will see you on the next episode. We love you all. Moi, Good night.
0: know that I I need to do just something to get closer to your soul, if you do know that I want